Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council. Just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 160 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome Casey James Presswood from Hot Rod Circuit. Casey and I talk through the history of Hot Rod Circuit and his current endeavors with country and his band, The Burning Angels. Casey recently released a 7-inch out with fellow friend from the anniversary, Josh Berwanger, on Lost Broadcast Records that's worth checking out. And if you wanted to know the ins and outs of what went down in the early 2000s, Hot Rod Circuit was right there. Casey weaves such a beautiful story through the eras, labels, and both hits and misses. I mostly sit back in this episode and let the master storyteller weave his tail. For more information on Casey, head on over to CaseyJamesPresswood.com. I want to thank all the Patreon supporters out there. If you want to support the podcast, head on over to Patreon.com slash WashedUpEmo and learn how you can support the show. This is episode 160 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Casey James Presswood from Hot Rod Circuit. that I was like skeptical about whether I would do the washed up emo podcast. I was just like, Oh no, is it like washed up? Like I'm a, you know, like I'm a deadbeat. Um, and then, uh, and you know, it's just like, uh, I, I hate to say that I like almost had to make a move to get out of emo, but I clearly was wanting to dabble in, in other things. You know what I mean? And I, it's not like I'm, there's no regrets there and no like shame and, I mean, I guess we can get into that as we talk about it. Because, I mean, I meet, not to be weird, but I meet fans all the time that are like, man, I really loved your stuff, like, when you were a kid, you know? Like, and I'll be like, oh, cool. I'm like, uh, I'm 38, and I've been playing music since I was 14. Um, and I've been doing country, actually, longer than I did, you know, air quotes, emo. Your stories matter. Like, Hot Rod Circuit's story matters. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's pretty cool to hear, honestly, because it is like a, a time that... Uh, even though it's still really fresh for me, it's 
disappearing fast and it was an era unlike today's era where every show you go to is recorded and you know what I mean? And there's so much coverage on everything. Like, uh, there's a lot of, uh, whew, a whole lot of them untold hot rod circuit stories for sure. You know? <laughs> so, okay. My name's Casey Presswood. You know, I was, I was born in Virginia, born in Northern Virginia. I was born in Leesburg and I lived there until second grade and middle of second grade, we moved to Richmond, Virginia, which is, uh, a, a culture shift, you know, even, uh, even though it's in the same state, there's a lot of, so we were out on like a four and a half acre lot growing up, me and my brother, a lot of exploring, a lot of outdoor stuff, neighbors had horses, that sort of thing. Summer between eighth and ninth grade. So like between like you know, middle school and high school, my dad, you know, was like, Hey, we're moving to Georgia. And I was like, Oh, well, you know, not that excited about it. I had like a friend group. I was starting to play music, had a guitar by then, you know, 93, 94, didn't last very long there before we ended up in Alabama, which is where I went to like all my high school years, uh, in Auburn, Alabama. So when people, <clears throat> you know, ask me where I'm from, that was like the last place I ever lived with my family and my brother and my mom and dad all under one house. It was like where I went to high school, where I learned to drive a car, get into lots of trouble. And, uh, that's where I met Andy Jackson and, you know, moved away from home to kind of be in hot rod, but, we'll get there. My mom liked Elvis and stuff like that, but for the most part, she was like big into like the beach boys. My dad was big into like the Beatles and Zeppelin. And they definitely like turned me on to their music. Um, and those were like my first musical influences. I mean, my parents took me to see Nirvana in 93 at William and Mary Hall in November 7th, you know? Um, No shit. You lucky piece of shit. Yeah. So I got to see them with like the breeders, you know? So, I mean, they, they were definitely exposing me to like, you know, very cool rock and roll music. Every summer, though, me and my brother would go stay with my grandmother, my mom's, <clears throat> my mom's mom, and and uh, you know, my grandfather, Granddaddy Tom. And they, for lack of a better term, were just like super duper country. And uh, I mean, they went to go see Hank Williams Sr. on a date before having my mom. You know. Wow. And uh, yeah, so that's where the influence comes from. And like every summer. You know, I'd be like, wow, I got the new Tom Petty Full Moon Fever cassette. Can't wait to play it on my grand- grandfather's, you know, jukebox while he's out fishing or uh, his, his boom box, rather. And I remember <laughs> playing it and him coming in and it being on like, you know, one and a half and him being like, oh, music these days. Everything's just so loud. And then he would turn on like Nashville Network and it'd be like the Porter Wagner show or something. <laughs> and me and my brother being like, you know, young Dolly Parton or something. And us just being like, oh my gosh, their music's so square. And then, you know, like 20 years later, I'm like, oh, my God, I wish I could just hang out with him. You know? Yeah. So, but, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. So anyway, okay, so I moved to, you know, moved even farther south. And then, you know, it seemed that what I grew up with, uh, I was a very arty kid, you know, I loved long hair. And um, I was like, you know, probably still am like a sensitive artist guy. And I was just like moving into like, well, if you don't play football what's wrong with you boy kind of like yeah you know vibe and uh i actually you know got along with most people like i do in life still like in in high school and stuff like that but uh i think i definitely kind of associated more with like the the art kids the drama kids and like uh you know anybody that was sort of an outcast in georgia and alabama and that's sort of how i met andy um i had recorded a record 
in Wetumpka, Alabama, there's a studio called Zero Return, and uh, a guy named Jim Marr runs it. And I think he's maybe in Atlanta now. I think he did like a super chunk record probably 10 years ago. So I think he's still doing music. And he's just like a great old analog dude, you know, really knew, knew his gear, knew how to make stuff sound good through simplicity. And it was like, that was the bullshit detector. And uh, this is like, maybe Pro Tools existed. I'm sure it did, because I think Nevermind was done on Pro Tools. But this is before I knew, like, anything would ever go into a computer. And uh, so, yeah, we, it was like, you know, you, you go down there and you get it right with four people. And that's what's like kind of on the record. And if you suck, then you suck. And so anyway, but my first record, <clears throat> which probably by today's standards sucks, but uh, <laughs> I was just a kid. I wrote, you know, a bunch of songs and uh, I got a little group together with my high school dudes in Auburn. It was called Skipper. And uh, it was like a kind of an oddball character in my like my middle school, uh, not, not, not quite a bully, just like a real standalone kind of interesting cat. But, uh, so Skipper made a record and, um, there's like maybe one cover on it and everything else is original. And Andy at the time was in this band that was popular called slip like S L I P. And they were like heavy. They were like kind of heavy, like wrist, like helmet, you know, quicksand, but, um, uh, yeah, it was, he was like a drop D guy, you know? And I was like, you know, I said, I saw Nirvana at the time. So clearly they were like an influence. I liked, I liked kind of like that lower stuff on bleach, you know, when I think about like drop D stuff. So I was like, Oh, I can do this, you know? But like, so anyway, Andy came in with slip and they made a record. And then that guy, Jim Marler in the studio was like, you know, you got to hear this kid and me and Andy are like seven years apart. Him, my senior, even though people probably think I look older than him now. Um, <clears throat> But, uh, he, uh, you know, he's, he got my number from the studio and called, called my parents' house. You know, I remember like calling my mom or dad or brother being like, Hey, you got some guy on the phone, a musician. I'm like, okay. So I called and he, you know, was basically like, Hey man, like, I'm really impressed with like your potential as a musician. And I like this record you put out, uh, you know, how about your band? comes to open for my band and you know i was like a freshman in high school and i I couldn't even drive luckily our drummer was like a junior senior and uh he got us a show at this place called head on the door in montgomery alabama where my band skipper was gonna open for slip so man that was like uh even just like back then like the difference between montgomery and auburn culturally was very different you know and uh, definitely more Southern, you know, vibe as opposed to like a college town. It's kind of like when you're in Lawrence or something and you leave Lawrence and, you know, so um, it was just super new experience for me. But um, so we went and played head on the door, you know, big X's on my hands. I was like 14, 15. And uh, very shortly after that, Andy started to call and kind of court me into like, well, Hey man, you know, your band is cool and you're, you know, you're a pretty good singer songwriter guy. And because of that, I want you to like be my lead guitar player, you know, and we can kind of write songs and, you know, and I was just like, you want me to join slip? And it was kind of like, yeah, I want you to join slip at first, you know? So I had to come in and kind of like learn what a couple other guitar players had done. And I remember just telling him like, man, I'm not like a lead guitar player. And he's like, well, I heard the leads you played on, you know, the skipper record or whatever. And I'm like, well, those aren't impressive. So if that's going to get me hired, then okay. And, uh, you know, and I, it's not like, 
not to be weird, I think I just had like a knack for music and I didn't really know how to play at all back then. It was all this feeling and, you know, like this is what, you know, and you get in a room and you jam out a song for like half an hour and then that's your song, you know, and you maybe record it on a jam box and then you save up money and go record it at zero return with Jamar. And that was just like, and you played like, <clears throat> you know, we were kind of like freaks musically back then like if we played a, sh- a show it'd probably be like maybe one maximum a month and that was like alabama music life for us maybe twice and then like if it was summer and i was off school or something andy would book like a little run there would be like a three show thing like down to florida and back maybe hit birmingham or tuscaloosa or something and i remember i'd like tell my friends like i'm going on tour <laughs> and then in hindsight you know like i remember getting a little bit older and like the drummer being like dude that that's embarrassing that you mentioned we used to tour tour florida i'm like you know like a terminology thing of like we hadn't quite earned it yet i kind of abandoned my high school band skipper which turned into stealing mikey and then i was in i was in slip which turned into ultimately you know there's a couple names between slip and hot rod circuit but it became a band called antidote for a while and it was kind of like me and andy and then some of his old rhythm section that he'd had in the uh, became musical chairs of rhythm section for a while until we made that antidote record which i believe was like 1997 and it was done in um birmingham alabama which is where andy lives now and it was a totally different town back then i mean i'm in memphis right now and memphis is so different to me than when we got broke down here in 1999 on our first triple crown tour but um <clears throat> so anyway uh i ended up uh playing lead guitar and when i first joined the band i think he and i did some co-writes you know and then that kind of like kind of you know he was always a very driven front man and you know uh so at some point I kind of lost uh, track of like being a co-write guy with him. And then in 1998, I graduated high school, Auburn, Alabama. We, you know, after putting out that, that antidote record and it, you know, for, it didn't really do anything because we weren't really doing anything. We played a show, a show a month and, you know, we couldn't get into any clubs. Like we had always like dreamed of like, Oh man, let's go play the masquerade and open for somebody cool. Like super chunk or the archers and, and, uh, in Atlanta, you know, and it was like just zero connection, zero experience for me, you know, doing anything like that. And, uh, so Andy kind of being, um, always thinking big, you know, like, I think I probably had maybe a week notice and we'd like talked about it, but it was kind of like, we're going to, man, when you graduate, we're going to move the band to New York city and we're going to make it, <laughs> you know, it was like, he was ambitious. And, uh, I remember it kind of coming up, but you know, like the, your friend comes says something like that. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know him super well back then. I was just like, okay, cool. So anyway, I graduated high school. I got into like Savannah art school. I got into Auburn, which is where my folks wanted me to go. Um, and, uh, man, with about a week's notice, Andy was just kind of like, well, Hey man, I'm leaving like tomorrow. I got a moving truck me and the band were going up to New York, either in or out. And I was like, well, look, man, I'm graduating high school in like a week. Like, can you, uh, you know, hold my spot at least till then? And he's like, all right, if you fly out, like right when you're done graduating, I'm cool with that. But like, you know, we got to get a start on the band. And I'm like, yeah. So I remember like having a really difficult time with my parents being like, well, you know, Hey, not only am I not going to go to college, but I'm going to go hang out with like, my friend that you think is probably the worst influence on me, you know, cause he was tattooed and, you know, they probably knew he's a stoner. And, uh, <clears throat> anyway, and, you know, when we got together, like I kind of 
skipped some of this, I guess, but like he was playing heavy stuff, but one of the things that we had in common right off the bat, I would say the two bands that he would probably say too were, I was like, man, have you heard Sunny Day Real Estate Diary? You know? And it was like before, right before the Pink record came out. And then, uh, and then the other one was, uh, have you heard Archer's Loaf, Vivi? Those were the two. And then there was this other band that people wouldn't know about really as much called Fudge. I think they were from Richmond, Virginia. And I had just kind of like stumbled upon a seven inch of theirs. And it was very, you know, I mean, I guess people would say, sure, Sunny Day Real Estate's considered emo, 100%. I get that. And like, I, I love, you know, I love that band. I see them on the reunion tours. I'm still like a hundred percent starstruck around Jeremy. I like, I don't know why I just get referred to being a kid and being like, Oh my God. Uh, and I have a sunny day tattoo. And like, um, I got off a of diary. I have the, the Fisher, you know, Fisher price. The, I think his name is Chris Thompson, the artist that, that painted the, the cover. Yeah. Still to this day, man, huge sunny day fan. I, you know, especially those first two records, but how it feels is how great. it feels, and, man. Uh, jam. It's a jam. Yeah. So, and, and we got to see them on that tour right when they did the reunion as a band, you know, we were like trekked up to New York city and, uh, gosh, there's so many hot rod stories. Let me tell you. All right, let's see. Uh, so back to, the, to those records, it was that, <laughs> those are the things in common. And then he was going like, cool, man, check out this dinosaur junior record. And I was going, Hey man, cool. Check out this built to spill. There's nothing wrong with love record. I remember those are like two of the first things that we traded. And he, he was really into the lemon heads and, uh, and, you know, I kind of liked pavement and he kind of like super chunk. And there was just like, definitely like a indie rock thing going on big time. And I think like it's evident in the music that one of the, our biggest heroes is, to this day is still be, Eric Bachman, Archer's a Loaf, you know? And uh, that's kind of like sort of what we set out to be, you know? And I mean, I, I failed to mention earlier, like Zero Return, uh, that studio out of Alabama, they yielded like those Manor Astro Man records and the Quadra Jets, which is like a pretty cool band where uh, Chet, Chet Weiss lives in uh, Nashville now. I think he's in, he wasn't a band called like the Lee County Killers. I'm not sure what they're called now, but uh, anyway, big big musical influences on me as a kid just like you know you're kind of moving around a lot of the kid all of a sudden you end up in a town and somebody's like hey man check out this band they're local they're called Mayor Astro Man I remember it just blew my mind you know it was kind of clear I knew what I wanted to do too and I knew it didn't fit the like going to school for four years mold and to be honest like having <clears throat> lived up and down the east coast as a kid and traveled to all over you know just being fortunate enough to do things like that as a kid, I, I kind of didn't want to stay in Auburn, Alabama, you know, as much as I had like good friends there and stuff. I, I, the appeal of like, you're going to go to New York city and, you know, kind of eat shit, but there's a chance that you might be playing music like once a week was like all I ever thought about, like as a kid, like never thought about doing it every day. Um, but, uh, yeah, man, it's, it's like kind of, uh, <clears throat> that's kind of how it got going. And then, so we moved up and the bass player was like really young and he, he still had like a year to graduate high school and he was just going to drop out of high school and kind of come up with us. His name was Dustin Hudson. And I remember it just being kind of like the details being like a little, uh, I, I don't remember exactly how everything went down, but it, long story short, when we got up to, or I finally got up to Connecticut so it didn't end up being in New York city. It was kind of like a couple of days before, cause I'd missed the truck that drove up there. 
Um, I remember like having a conversation with Andy on the phone. He's like, man, things are so expensive up here. And, you know, bring this, bring that. And I'm like, cool. And I'm like, so if you guys like, you know, got off of sleeping off of whatever relative's floor and like started looking for a place in the city and him just being like, you know, I think I'm looking for a place here. And, and I was like, where? And he's like, you know, Shelton, Connecticut. <laughs> I just remember being like, well, this isn't the New York City that I like thought about, but I remember just thinking like, I'm all in at this point. We're going to go. And I guess, you know, New York City is close to Shelton, Connecticut in my mind, as far as I knew. So, uh, yeah, we ended up moving up there and uh, we got up there and the bass player ended up staying behind. It was this guy named Wes Cross on drums who played on the you know, antidote record and played on the first hot rod circuit album. And, uh, we didn't have a basis as far as I knew, cause I'm like, well, dang, Dustin and Andy just had a falling out there. Dustin can't go cause he's still in high school, which makes tons of sense in hindsight. And then, um, uh, yeah, we, uh, <clears throat> you know, as far as I knew, we needed a bass player. And then we got up there and Andy's wife at the time, Brana <clears throat> was like, playing kind of like they'd already had a, like a practice or two maybe without me and uh i was like really big into moog <laughs> synthesizers then which i still am it's fucking sweet but i remember that being like kind of like a it was almost like a point of um like it like ah oh, casey's just in moog land you know i'm gonna bring him back into being a guitar player which is ultimately sort of what happened with me and pebble steel you know a little bit but uh you know, and I think the Moog thing, you know, it's like, of course, I loved Weezer and the rentals and stuff like that. But I, my, like, big passion that Andy actually turned me on to is this band called Brainiac, you know, which uh, people are starting to kind of, like, uh, go back to now. And I, I believe there's a pretty cool documentary coming out about it. And when Hot Rod first moved up to, to Connecticut, we ended up playing shows in New York City. One of the first bands we got to play was this band Enon, which was the guitar player, John Schmersel from Brainiac. And I remember just being like, you know, the fact that I got to kind of become friends with him was just like a total validation of like, well, see, I wouldn't have done this in Auburn. And like, I mean, I had three Brainiac tattoos. Still wow. do. It's not like I've had them removed. <laughs> yeah, big, big, big Brainiac fan. And, you know, they had like a really short window of music and it's nothing that like people would listen to and be like i get it this is like hot rod like it's totally you know weird like devo uh meets you know acid or something i don't know how to explain it but <laughs> i love that band yeah man so uh, we we had braun on bass we made this ep braun played bass on that and uh at least on two songs long story short uh i had to get a job pretty quick moving to uh Connecticut and within a few days of like the band living all in a house together with Andy's two kids uh we I got a job at Subway like the sandwich place, <laughs> sandwich place randomly this dude just walked in and I remember he had a cigarette behind his ear and he's wearing uh you know you got to think it's 1998 so he's wearing a modest mouse t-shirt of course he is and I remember and yeah and it was Jay Russell and I remember being like oh man like, because it turns out, like, Shelton, I mean, it's not, like, exactly like Alabama, but for Connecticut, it's, like, uh, it's very blue-collar, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I wasn't, like, just in my element with people with beetle boots and, like, whatever else, you know, it was, like, I kind of was, like, oh, crap, this is, reminds me of parts of Alabama, in a way, and, and, I mean, which is an easy transition, and uh, so I didn't see lots of, like, sunny-day real estate 
shirts or, or things like that. And all of a sudden I see this guy with his modest mouth shirt. They weren't my favorite band at the time by any means, but I was a big like built spill fan at the time. So <clears throat> I knew who they were. And I remember just being like, Hey man, like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Jay. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like, can I bum a smoke from you? You know? And he, uh, as I like took a break, I probably wasn't supposed to take at the subway. That job didn't last very long. And, you know, we struck up a friendship and he's like, I'm a musician. I was like, that's cool. And, you know, and I was like, what do you play? He's like, I play guitar. And I was like, oh, that's that's cool. That's what I play. He's like, yeah, I play bass in a band now, though. And uh, he was joining this band called Trouble as a Girl. It's like a punk rock band. This guy named Jamie Chagru was the singer who ended up in a band with Kate and I called the Sissy Bars and the Don't Tells. I remember just thinking like, wow, Jay's a really cool hip dude. I have to become friends with him. And in that short little exchange of him being a guitar player and just catching up on bands and stuff, I remember him being like, well, you know, yeah, I play bass too. And I, I remember being like, well, Andy's wife's playing bass right now, but I wonder what this guy's kind of got, you know? And it's not like Andy's wife was a bad bassist. She was great. It was just, uh, just it felt like something we needed to try for some reason to me, you know? And I remember, I remember just like inviting him to a practice, and then for some reason I couldn't go to practice. I think I had to work subway probably. And so he went and watched the band practice without me. I think his first time. <clears throat> and then I remember the drummer West being like, you know, and at one point Bruno like went to go get a drink or something. Jay just picked up the bass and kind of just played, you know, whatever song it was that we were working on. And he's like, man, and it felt really good. And I think that like in the back of his mind, Andy kind of knew like, well, it's going to be really tough for me to bring the wife on tour playing bass with the kids, you know, and this guy is like, I mean, Jay to this day is just a wild character, man. He's, you know, big personalities, like one of my best friends. Um, and, uh, yeah, it seemed like an opportunity we couldn't pass, you know? And, uh, so, uh, and I didn't even hear him the first time, but it was already kind of like told like, all right, this dude's going to be our guy, you know? So I was like, look, oh, I'm already in. Cause I, you know, bump the smoke from him and, you know, he had a Moss Mouse t-shirt, so he wins. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so he ended up being in the band, man, you know, and then it was like, okay, we're Antidote. We had to change the name to Hot Rod Circuit. I think, I think by that time I'd already upgraded in life and I was working at Sam Ash Music in New Haven. And, uh, once again, like not being around for an important band talk and they're like, getting stoned watching the Simpsons or something that that's where the line hot rod circuit came from. Burn said it. And, uh, I remember them being like, well, I think we had run into the issue of there being a hardcore band from New York called antidote, like a street. I want to say they're street edge or something. That sounds about right. Yeah. We kind of like started talking about it and it was like, well, maybe we're going to have to change our name, you know? And I didn't really like slip. I didn't, I'd never, I've really never been in a band where I like, I'm like, I love this band name, but you know, you just kind of go, okay, well, everybody else likes it. Hot Rod Circuit. That's cool. The first thing it had like occurred to me was like, we're going to be considered a rockabilly band, which me and the drummer definitely like listened to, you know, old school, like rockabilly stuff at that time. At least I did a little bit of dabble in it, you know, it's like rocking a pompadour, had a Betty Boop tattoo, you know, um, you know, you're just growing up, going through different stuff, whatever. Uh, something I still like, you know, part of it anyway. Um, so yeah, then, then, you know, then there's hot circuit. This probably brings us up to like around 99 and, 
So like we started playing this place in New Haven, you know, so we, de- we definitely like upped our like one show in Alabama a month to like three to four shows a month if we were lucky in Connecticut. And, you know, we we're starting to like try to get into New York City and stuff like that. It was no luck in the beginning, but it eventually happened. And <clears throat> so what happened is we played the tune in with this band called Lounge. And Lounge was kind of like a pop punk outfit. I guess you could liken them to almost like a lag wagon or something in the way that they sounded. We played with with them and they were like really cool guys. I think at the time, like Connecticut was pretty like hardcore and Hot Rod didn't really relate to that in the early days, you know? So like seeing a pop punk band was like comforting in a way to which like, wow, we're going to be friends with these guys. And uh, we were, and we hit it off with them and they happened to have, I think their booking agent was there at the time. It was a guy named Andrew Ellis. He's like kind of a mythical figure these days to me. I mean, I love the guy. Um, I remember, you know, he's got this like this attitude that if you don't know him very well, like he's abrasive and uh, and uh, like telling you what you need to know in very few words kind of way. <laughs> and I remember him being like, "Well, um, you know, you guys got got potential, but uh, Andy, we're on this and you know whatever." And like kind of just like coached us, you know, like right off the bat. And and we're like, "Wow, man, I want to work with somebody like that." But him just being kind of like, man, you know, I've got other stuff going on. <laughs> and like, us being like, okay. And, uh, but, you know, Andy Jackson was smart enough to pursue it. And it was kind of like, let's do what Ellis says. And, so, you know, so for our first, like, couple things working with him, it was like almost like assignments he gave us to book a show to, like, figure out how to, like, you know, be musicians and, like, the nuts and bolts of, like, how you're supposed to book a show. And so, so like, Jackson kind of took the helm on that. And, uh, you know, we followed uh, the path of Ellis, which led us to putting out the EP that we had sort of done. Um, even we had pressed it ourselves and just done CDRs. I mean, CDRs back in like 98, 99. Huge. You went to go see, yeah, I was like, oh my God, they have a CD, you know, nowadays it's like garbage. But uh, yeah, we had a CDR EP and then like Ellis was kind of like, we need to pro this up. So I'll have my buddy do some artwork, which led into the... Uh, High Red Circuit EP art, which I don't know if we want to discuss in this podcast, but it's pretty infamous with the uh, pixelated statue on top of a car with like a, oh man, look it up when we're done. And I'm not going to, I don't want to, I don't want to be mean about anything. I'm grateful for where we are, but anyway, uh, it's, yeah. Anyway, so we, we did that album and Ellis was like, I have like an imprint called Multiple Hotel. We will put out the EP we started to, uh, you know, try to do little runs that he was putting together for us. It was like more, it was more work than the band had ever done. I remember it's like, you know, playing three or four shows and being exhausted back then. And you're like, oh my gosh, because you know, I was always a spaz anyway. Even if, even if we only played 30, 30 minutes, I'd be beat. So we're building up our, you know, endurance and figuring out how to do it. That's kind of like around where Fred Feldman came into the picture. Uh, Fred and Andrew, really good friends, and had worked together with some bands. And Fred, at that point, to my knowledge, he might have put out the lounge record, but I remember for sure, like he put out like kind of like more hardcore stuff, like Twenty Five to Life. That term emo was just kind of starting to be thrown around, and I remember just kind of being like, um, I didn't get it, you know, because I'm like, well, wait a minute, how could like Sunny Real Estate and Weezer and like discord bands and <laughs> you know what i mean i didn't get what it was but i also wasn't offended i was never offended because it was kind of like well it's putting us in good company with bands that i i, I like or want to play with anyway so 
but you know, like I said, like I think <clears throat> me and Andy kind of came from more of like this Archer's a little super chunk dinosaur junior indie thing. And anyway, um, so yeah, we went to go make, uh, if I knew the first record it was in 99 in New York city. It was a two day process. It did do everything in two days. And the second day we were already kind of done recording. We're just maybe a couple touch up vocals for Andy mixing, mastering everything by this guy named Joe big rock Hogan. I remember hearing he had like, you know, maybe engineered on like an ACDC record or, or something, man, but he just like, he knew how to like get really good sounds. The band was playing a lot at the time. So we were like, you know, played everything live. It's just a good record. You know, we used some of the songs that we had used on the EP and, you know, songs like low and slacker and stuff like that. We put that record out, you know, through Fred Feldman, Triple Crown. And yeah, he was like, kind of like, well, I'm going to gamble on you guys. But frankly, this is not what, you know, what I do. And that was like, you know, clearly before like brand new and other other bands were on Triple Crown like that. And then we just started working, man. You know, that was kind of our first real tour. I remember it was like, whoa, it's two weeks, like 14 shows in 15 days or something, you know. And man, we, we got in this van that was a, a Russell Lennon being Jay Russell's family's linen company van. And, uh, you know, probably had like one roadie played three or four shows, got to Memphis, Tennessee, which is where I am right now. The transmission blew, And we had just inked the deal with, uh, with triple crown, which is kind of a funny story too. That's an interesting night about the a song came out of it at the St. Mark's reference. Anyway, um, uh, stuck in memphis and uh we were so broke like i wasn't working at subway or sam ash anymore it was like man hopefully they have like some chips and salsa when we get to the venue i mean we were just like really broke i mean andy uh started working for the linen i didn't have a job at the time other than playing the music and getting in the van yeah we were like basically trapped in memphis man and we stayed at this hotel called the admiral benbow b-e-n-b-o-w it's not there anymore but i mean it's it's stuff of horror or you know legend when you hear about bad hotel experiences no one has experienced that place <laughs> you know like it was just it was a rough one man and we were just down in the dumps like while we were on our first tour i remember we had to get our entire advance for for the first record uh, if i knew which i think whatever it's probably like a grand or something it was you know the transmission was probably like 1500 bucks i think jay's parents probably helped us out on the rest and yeah, we had to drive home with like our, uh, you know, in shame, go back. And, you know, that was like our first tour. And it was like, and back then we, we couldn't, I mean, we played the tune in and stuff like that. And we'd get added to these like punk shows or hardcore shows. But for lack of a better term, we didn't have a following in New Haven yet. And it seemed like we did almost did better if we played like Boston or New York City or Philly or Rhode Island. And I just remember like, we'd always come home and sometimes we'd play a new Haven show or something. And it was just never, never really well attended in the early days around the time that we met up with the get up kids, which me and Wes had already like back in Bama had four minute mile. I remember Wes also turned me on to like the promise ring. Uh, they came and played a place in Connecticut called the Webster theater. I think the whole band kind of did like a band field trip. And there I was like, had another work night or something and I couldn't go. <laughs> But they got to meet, like, I think Pryor or Subtick or something. And this is like in 99, you know, and the Get Up Kids were uh, starting to kind of, like, become a big deal, it seemed like. At that show, um, I remember I was able to go, like, the next night, which I feel like was in Worcester, Mass, or something like that. But So so they loved it so much, they're like, we're going to go again tonight. 
you got to see it. This band is so professional. Like if somebody's out of tune, they step on a pedal tuner and they tune like in the middle of the song. And I remember being like, whoa. And, you know, it was kind of like legendary that Ryan and Robbie were brothers and that, you know, like Matt had cool hair and that, you know, Jim sang too. And it was like this seemed like this, like this really cool band. So yeah, we went and saw them. We met them. They were like super, super nice to us to where the next time they rolled through New York city, they played a place, Coney Island. We went and played Coney Island with them and it might've been with Enon and then I remember just being blown away, like getting the experience. I just, it felt like we were a band on the sidelines that kind of was doing that stuff. And then all of a sudden like, wow, like we just got drafted up, you know, and we got to play that show. I think we were probably the first band. And I remember Andrew Ellis, just being on the side of the stage going, say the fucking band name. And I remember like, kind of like not remembering that that was him back in the day. He wore this like camouflage jacket that had like the blues brothers or something like painted on the back. And he just, you know, he still has this wild look sometimes today. I love that dude. But I remember just being like, man, some fucking crazy dude is on the side of the stage. telling us to yell, yell the band name. Andy, say the band name. And Andy's like, okay, we're hot. Let's get, you know, <laughs> he never was like, uh, really chatty with the crowds back in the day. And anyway, the get up kids had told us that night. I remember it was Jim was telling me and Andy's like, well, listen, we're signing a deal with this label in California called vagrant. They're like going to give us our own imprint. And the first band we're going to sign is our friend's band. Uh, I think I can't remember. He said the anniversary of Kofax, but I remember him being like, you know, we have these two bands and we're, we're going to sign, but you know, don't want to, you know, put it out there too much, but you guys are definitely on our radar for us to like talk to, you know, for, uh, heroes and villains, you know, which is the imprint that, that, uh, sorry about tomorrow is on. I remember thinking, I was like, sort of like just super dreamy, unreal that, you know, like kind of our heroes in the moment would be like, yeah, man, like, you know, not only do we think you're cool, but we're gonna try to help you get signed. I mean, that was like a huge, huge thing. Um, yeah, it was very cool, man. So then, you know, and at the time, I think the only bands that I knew that were on Vagrant were like, no, maybe No Motive was already on there. Face to Face, I know for sure it was. Face to Face is kind of like the big name that we're all like, ooh, Face to Face is on there. Okay, well, shit, man. You know, if the Get Up Kids and Face to Face are on there, we this is something we need to consider. Around that time, you know, we kind of skipped over the second Triple Crown record, which is kind of, in my opinion, maybe the best Hot Rod Circuit record. But uh, that record, even though um, in hindsight, you know, it's not as like rich and full sounding as the first record, I think song wise, that's that's probably my favorite. And we did that one in Lawrence, Kansas at Black Lodge, which I think was just called it was called something else back then. It was before the Get Up Kids had briefly owned it. You know, first two Triple Crown records, like we signed a a deal that was like two and an option. When we started talking to the Get Up Kids, it was like around that, you know, a lot of the second album songs were being played it didn't feel like we were doing anything bad or cheating on fred because we knew you know he wanted bigger and better things for us anyway we're moving on and then a friend of ours named gorman bouchard did the video for flight 89 you know and i think that was like our first video it was filmed in my kitchen of like my first apartment in new haven connecticut he hired like an actress model to kind of like you know be in it with andy and flight 89 was the flight that i booked from Atlanta to Connecticut in 98 when I moved through. And that was a line that I threw around. Like it's been a long time since I've been fighting flight 89 North American. I just gave it to Andy. Said, Here's a song I wrote or a line of a song. 
I don't have any music. I don't, you know, I don't know if you want to like use this at all. <laughs> and, you know, like Weak Warm, me and Jay kind of, and Wes wrote that one musically. I came up with the riff and then we arranged it. And then Andy wrote words to that. I think everything else pretty much on the first record, almost all Andy wrote, you know, and then second record I wrote, uh, was it You Kill Me? I kind of wrote that one all musically and gave that one to Andy and he wrote words. So that was a co-write. And then, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, of course, there's a lot of weir weir on that record, but that was like, uh, you know, either me just being stoned and having fun at practice, or like, it kind of came out of being that like noisy guitar that I was obsessed with and like Brainiac too. It kind of think I think turned into like a, a trademark or something accidentally, and, and and you know an emo joke if there ever was one that I heard circulating about me on that one. <laughs> and of course, my pants my pants were getting pretty tight by then. So the story that you're telling, and I think it, it interesting leads into the vagrant years because of, you know, obviously what had happened with that label and all the things, but thinking outside of it, of the story, did it start to feel weird yet? Because I do the pre bleed American post bleed American pre bleed American people were like, what are you talking about? And Oh, it's that. And then they started knowing the word, or at least there was this thing happening. And then just more people were sort of like in the room. Like it's not just, you know, Ellis and Fred, there's like five different Ellis's and Fred's not them personally, but just that thing. And it, did it start to feel weird? I was a little brat and I didn't pay attention to a lot of the nuts and bolts stuff going on that I should have in hindsight. It would have been helpful for my music career, but um, you know, we were just talking to Vagrant, right? And of course, like, you have somebody like that tells you they're going to get you signed. There's no way that you're like going home and being like, I don't know, guys, let's talk to a lawyer. Or, you know, it wasn't like that. It was like, man, this this is what we're going to do. You're talking about like more people in the room with the, the business people. It seemed like around that time, there started to be more people in the room of the places we we're playing. And I would attribute that a lot to the fact that we were playing with bands like To Get Up Kids. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of heat on the anniversary. We were getting to play with them. And then, um, you know, yeah, we were in talks with Vagrant. And we I think it was before we had met Rich. But around that same time, I mean, and this is probably right before or right after we met Rich, we also kind of had interest from Drive Through, uh, which was a imprints off of MCA and you know the only thing we knew about drive through really was at that time anyway was that you know we had played with newfound glory really early on when they were like just kids man and it was at the bottom of the hill san francisco i was probably the year 2000 or maybe 99 and so you know somehow out of that i think you know we got an interest from them and it was kind of like before we inked the deal with vagrant there was kind of talk of, well, what if we went this other way? And it was like, well, what are the pros and cons? And, you know, it seemed like in the simplest form without sounding like a, you know, stupid about it, that basically there was like probably more money maybe somehow associated with, uh, with MCA. But in, in the long run, it seemed like, some of the things in the contract with them would have like stifled some of the creative uh, things. You know, they had a little bit more like executive control over exactly what the album is called or like what's on the album art. And, you know, we can seem like they could kind of veto songs. And I think like 
<clears throat> as an artist, Andy and me, uh, for sure, were just like not willing to compromise at that point, uh, the vision of the band. And even though maybe we didn't know what, what it was yet, we were just kind of like, no. And, you know, so the, the vagrant offer was more humble and, but at the same time, we were like, it's, it seemed like more of like a family opportunity, just like hop into like, and it's like, whoa, our friends, uh, outgoing trio are doing it. And our friends, uh, you know, down the road stays a day are doing it and the anniversary. And so, yeah, it, it was kind of like for just a tiny second there, like, wait a minute, where's it going to go? And then, and I won't, you know, discuss the numbers or anything like that, but at the end of the day, I think we made the right choice. And I think that Rich really cared about the band in a way that just made more sense to us and, you know, having that like camaraderie and we would go out to Vagrant and in LA and like, just go home with like final records. And like, they just like took super, super good care of us. Rich would like had this joke back in the day where he'd be like, okay, you know, like the first time I think he literally took us to Taco Bell and was like, it's on the label guys, anything off of the dollar menu. On me. <laughs> you know, that was the joke. And then like the next time up, it was like a slightly better, Mexican restaurant, you know, and then towards the end, he was like, Hey, remember when I did that to you guys? We're like, yeah, no, we do. Uh, anyway. Um, so yeah, man, that, that's how we ended up, uh, there. But, so for uh, the sorry about tomorrow record and yeah. you know, that was, that was 2002. You've, you know, you mentioned some of the bands that, you know, that we're touring with and a lot of these kind of, you had, you know, MTV, you had, you know, obviously, you know, Vagrant was kind of happening and at a certain yeah. point when you guys were on the road and talking about this stuff and just like, wow, more people are showing up or, oh, wow, this other, like from that era when it wasn't as easy to see what was happening, you can't refresh your Instagram to see the likes. You can't like, it It was almost like when you guys were all together, the bands were you saying like, dude, this is getting nuts or wow. We're really feeling like there's a connection of what we're doing and everyone sounded different. We did, man. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like it all felt different too at the time, but it was all like, Oh, we're emo, I guess. And like, so yeah, I don't think like in hindsight that I like noticed the growth. I, I it almost felt like just like went from okay, there's eight people at the tune in to see us play in New Haven to like man, like did we just sell out brownies in New York City? You know, and uh, <clears throat> so it was. It seemed quick, man. I bet you it was more gradual. I think that you know my performance style, where I just kind of got so in the zone back in the day, like I kind of. I treated it like I didn't need somebody there to have an excuse to throw down and like really, you know, put on my show or whatever it was that I did. Um, and so as I kind of, you know, like we're saying the fader just went up really quick. It was like, yeah, I definitely started to notice like, wow, I just whacked somebody with my guitar and I would never even dream of wanting to do that, but I feel like an asshole now, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and you know, the band was like, super loving with each other at times. And then, you know, like you hear about every other band, we were very much like brothers and we fought a lot. Me and Jay would get into a lot. I mean, Andy hardly ever got into it back in the day, which was kind of, kind of nice. Um, but <clears throat> he always seemed like the other players in the band would, you know, try to use me as like the communication tool sometimes. Like I was the buffer between, you know, you know, a little bit, you know, in the early days. Um, and, you know, we, we went through different drummers like uh, Wes, quit um he kind of like had gone through a divorce and 
met a lady and it was just a spot in his life where that moving from Alabama up with the band, like those times are just so like intense, you know, and like, um, that he met this lady and wanted to settle down. He wanted to tour and like, you know, I was, I was cool with that. Uh, it felt weird, you know, to like have to move on and get somebody else. And so like in the, in the time that we were auditioning new drummers, probably auditioned like five, all of a sudden Mike Corman shows up, you know, and he just beat the hell out of the, the kit. And I remember us, me and Andy being like, yeah, that's the guy. Like we got to hire this dude. He played like two, two or three songs. We could already tell like just personality wise and stuff. Like he's funny. He's cool. Like, you know, he's got tattoos. He can hang with us and he'll be cool. And, uh, and back then he was straight edge and we're like, Oh man, we need somebody like that. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it just was like the perfect fit in all these ways. So we hired, we hired him and then it was kind of like, cool. Hey man, we're going on tour in like two weeks. So like, why don't you just kind of maybe move in with me in New Haven and we'll just start like, uh, practicing every day and get you up to speed for this tour. And he was like, dude, I really want to join the band, but I can't because I have to do this other tour that I already agreed to or this other recording or whatever it was in hindsight. I remember us being devastated because we had already like given the job to him. And then we were like, well, shit, what do we do? We can't like fire him now. Like he's our guy. We want him. What are we going to do? So Dan Duggins had entered the picture and he played in a band called Lazy Cane. That was very like, love Lazy Cane. They were really cool. And I think like, his drumming reminded me and Andy of like uh, Zachary Barakas from Jawbox. Keep in mind, you know, keep in mind this this unofficial document you're getting from me. Like you're talking to like the guy that was considered to be the quiet guy in the band a long time ago. <laughs> you know, I I didn't talk a lot. I was like, I more like more or less wave to the audience, play with my back to the audience. I was like, I think I'm a lot shyer than people thought I was. And, Obviously, my confidence has gone somewhere jacked now. I don't know what the hell is going on. But uh, <laughs> it was so, you're talking about there's more people showing up. And then, sorry about tomorrow, you mentioned 2002. I think of that one as 2001, because that's when we recorded it, you know? And what's wild is, like, we played those songs for a long time before we recorded them, to the point where I think, like, when we recorded Sorry About Tomorrow, there's probably only three or four tunes on there that, like, people hadn't heard, you know, because we've been playing the pharmacist and playing nature, which, uh, you know, back to like talking about who wrote what and stuff like that. I mean, Andy, Andy, by the time sorry about tomorrow rolled around, wrote pretty much everything. I mean, I wrote that book, obviously at the beginning of, of nature, but, uh, he was really, you know, <clears throat> he's really focused at that point And like, you know, had a, it developed style and me and it, me and Jay were like, moving you know we would still co-write on some parts but for the most part we're really like turning our focus on just supporting andy instead of like i feel like when you first join a band you're a kid you're like well i'm one fourth of the band and i do this one part and it's like i think like you don't realize that sometimes you gotta like service the song and then and that's you're like really you're backing up that dude's vision you know and that's kind of we some somehow sort of landed on that knowing that's what we wanted to do when we made sorry about tomorrow it's hard sometimes to communicate and tell somebody you don't like something that you're really close with. And it was like, we were already kind of working ourselves into that corner a little bit and, uh, growing, you know, and figuring out how to have those conversations. And, you know, that we talked about making the first record live and analog on two inch tape. And then the second record, we did that with like the drums and the original kind of takes. And then we threw those on pro tools and kind of started doing 
overdubs. And I remember being, being like, well, you know, you don't have to play the whole song all over again. We'll just fix this one part. And being like, wait a minute, what? That's like not how I grew up doing stuff. This is incorrect. Because it seemed like cheating, you know, but at that, at that time I was like, okay, okay, I'll cheat on this, I guess. It saves me more time or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, so it was just a different, different school of thought. And so then we get sorry about tomorrow. And I think same kind of thing where we like probably recorded the, the gut tracks maybe on Twitch tape, but it was definitely a Pro Tools album. And uh, that was done with this guy named Brian McCarran in Bellsville, Maryland. So basically kind of like a suburb of D.C., and uh, we went from two days on uh, If I Knew, and then uh, If It's Cool, we probably booked like eight or nine days to track, where the first four or five were really mostly drums and bass, and then we started sort of had to cram guitars and singing in, and uh, and then moved from that studio in Adora, Kansas, out to a place called Zagwamps, which is where it was in record was mostly mixed and the overdubs are done with Alex Brawl. So then you get into the McTernan record and uh, I remember the first thing we did with him was Radiation Radiation Suit or as Rich from Vagrant I think he used to call it Radiation Man and uh, that came out on the Vagrant sampler, you know, that was like the first offering we had and when we worked with McTernan we already kind of knew those things I addressed with like you know you're, we're going to have to be able to tell each other like to change their, your part if it doesn't fit the song and uh, I remember Brian really working with me and me being totally freaked out about it in hindsight you know about like well Andy's playing this you should think about it almost like this and you know kind of kind of forcing me to grow and uh, I'm glad that he did in hindsight and uh, we uh we just had a really great time doing Radiation Man with him. And uh, so that so it was a no-brainer. Let's, and it was like Mike's buddy from Boston. And no-brainer, let's go make Sorry About Tomorrow there. So we wouldn't make Sorry About Tomorrow. And it was in 2001. And we got there in August. And we had booked a month, like four weeks, man, of tracking. And uh, I remember just being like, we are fucking rock stars you know in my mind i would never like say that but i was like this is incredible like to to be able to like breathe and not like you know be just like terrified if like it doesn't get done and you don't finish your stuff and like you know we would we'd been from like van van and trailer wow we're like really kicking ass now to like i think the first tour bus tour we ever did we split a bus with alkaline trio and that was before vagrant america and then, uh, yeah, so then after that, we went off to make Sorry About Tomorrow. And the first day we got to the studio, he set up these live microphones. And we basically recorded the whole record, just played all the songs that were going to be on it live for him to kind of, like, listen to for a day or two. And then, uh, you know, we kind of got everything set up the way we wanted, and we started making the album. And we did it, like, the opposite of live in the sense that the drums were completely recorded by themselves. The bass was overdubbed. Andy's part was overdubbed. And then he sang to it. And then Jay sang to that. To where everything was leading up to me being the, uh, you know, wishful thinking icing on the cake. And it was going to be like, cool, man, I'm going to just get in there and have these great sounding tracks. I'm going to feel a kick ass and like really, really blend with this dude, Brian, who helped me out on Radiation Suit. And, you know, and, and if, I had had my whole, I, don't, I would never like go in on okay, and be like, I don't really have a part. Like for the most part, I'd go in and, you know, I had everything written out for a story about tomorrow. 
because we've been playing the songs live. So then, you know, it came time to do my stuff, and uh, it, this will sound harsh, but like, I remember if, like, Mike had a bad day, him and Brian were such bros, they'd be like, Brian would be like, man, you know, you had a tough one today, cutting whatever uh, knees, you know, let's let's take you out and get, to, get you a smoothie, buddy, you know? And then, I mean, the reason I think for the, the tone shift with when, when I went in there to do my stuff so much was the fact that 9-11 happened, you know? We were in the studio, it was D.C., and, I mean, the traffic was, like, backed up to Brian's studio at that time. was in a, was in a house, and uh, people were just freaking out, man. Like, get the fuck out of here. And, uh, and me and my wife, Kate, had been married that year, that June, um, right before Vagrant America. And uh, I remember just, like, not being able to call her, the GW being closed, so she couldn't come visit me. I couldn't just, like, leave, come home, and presume you know, doing the record or something. So, uh, it was, it was a, a crazy time. And I remember, you know, we were just like living it up. Brian, like waking us up and being like, yo, turn on the TV, man, there's some crazy shit going on. And so, and that was literally like the first day I want to say that I was probably supposed to go in and track guitar. And so we took the day off and we went into, when we finally did go in to get in there, of course, everybody's in a weird mood, you know, like it's not like a fun time to make a record. He and I just like immediately kind of like clashed, I would say on, I would play something and he would be like, yeah, I just can't really ever think of a time where there's like a lead guitar player playing a lead while a guy's singing a chorus. And I was like, <laughs> you know, and clearly it's probably just like a communication issue in hindsight, but I took it all like personal and was very like, okay, then can you tell me like how Dinosaur Jr. works as a band? You know, and like, so we, I remember like a, a couple of times us like yelling or me yelling, probably being a dick, you know, and just like, because it wasn't, he didn't understand my approach and my vision. And I, I understand that in hindsight too. And I don't think that he, it's not that he didn't understand it. I, I don't think like either he or I knew how to communicate. Like we were both trying to just get the best thing. And, uh, I, you know, in hindsight, it wasn't an ego thing as much as it was more of a, it's probably more of an emo thing, actually. Uh, no, I was, I, I was like sensitive, you know, and it really felt like, the language he was using to communicate to me was very much like, you know, I don't know, I'm going to finish this record in the amount of time we have to finish it with, the, you know, with your playing. And it wasn't those words verbatim. And I give him credit for that. But uh, it was tough to get my stuff down. And in the end, I felt like, you know, we clashed and butted heads and maybe didn't know how to talk to each other as dudes. Like, we still made a good product. And I remember him thinking that and me thinking that. And then it went off to master and man, the first master of, uh, it was a different sequence of sorry about tomorrow. I remember we all got it and I was so fucking bummed, man. I was like, what? Like it, whatever EQ they used to kind of bring out Andy's vocals is completely complete, like squashed all of my hard work, you know? And I had like kind of really, first time I was like getting to use different amps for different songs and we'll work on, you know, like clean tones and stuff. You know, I, I started dabbling in pedal steel on that record. Um, and that was kind of a struggle too. And I, I think any producer seeing, you know, if it's cool and they're like, cool, I'm going to make the big record, the follow up to that amazing record. Oh, and now the guitar player wants to sit down and play pedal steel. That's not a big deal. I would have been alarmed as a producer too, but, uh, it all worked. And, the record is 
you know, clearly like the fan favorite of the band. It's a good record, man. It, it, the, the first master didn't do it justice, and Rich knew that too. And Rich heard it and said, "Man, I'm gonna get this uh, remastered in LA. We're gonna do a different sequence that really grabs grabs by the balls." And <clears throat> and man, that second master came out, and it's kind of like damaged from the experience just a touch. At, in the beginning, I, I I still couldn't accept it as as good of a record as it is, you know. I think I just have like a baggage attached to it with what was going on at the time. You know? Oh, I but bet. Clearly, yeah, it's clearly a really good album. He was growing fast, you know. Like, like I said, you know, all of a sudden you're not in the van. Like, you get in the van like after a show, um, and you played a different a city you've never played before. Everyone like gets in the van. If you're good enough, to sort of share all these stories of like, oh man, did you meet this dude? Did you see this one guy's hair? And oh man, it's like, you know, you just and then this guy's guitar and this dude's girlfriend or whatever, it's whatever, just bouncing all off to each other and everyone's a sounding board. And, uh, it kind of went from that to like, man, everybody's like, okay, well, sound check's over. I'm going to go sleep until I have to play, you know, like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like, it was just like, there was a lot of things changing and I, Andy was becoming more of a front man. And, uh, I don't know, man, it was, it was a different time. And all of a sudden it was like, well, we're going to LA to shoot a video for the pharmacist like on film you know i was like what we went from like you know making this thing like on a digital camera for a video for the first one and i think that got a little bit of in in tv2 play you know uh pharmacist was like kind of a, a big production you know I mean, the budget for the pharmacist is probably two or three times the budget for the whole album of sorry about tomorrow recording wise you know yeah so reality yeah reality like took that that lucky Wow, or spoiled like rock dudes or whatever vibe that I had going on with Sorry About Tomorrow. We had a month and like multiply that times three and put a producer in the mix that was somebody that I really admired named Tim O'Hare, you know, who had done records that I really liked. It was a big process, you know, and then kind of like I think me and Jay kind of got hungry for the like wanting to do more than our roles that we were doing in the band, you know, I started playing a lot more pedal steel. Jay was doing some keys on that record and uh, really getting into the harmonies. And um, it was like, in my world of it, it was my favorite record we ever did uh, because the process was just so cool. And, um, and you know, that we got to go make that in New York City over like almost a three-month period. And, uh, like all lived together in an apartment in Brooklyn and... Uh, I mean, it was, I was at the top of the world as far as like being, feeling lucky and getting to do what I wanted to do. Cause I had a producer that wasn't like scared of pedal steel. Not that Brian was scared of it. I just think, you know, at that time with the music, the band was making it, it didn't really have a place and I was forcing it. And then these songs that kind of like begged for it. Tim was knew how to uh, harness weirdness of my playing and like make it stand out, you know, and go, Hey, that is kind of weird. Let's put a space echo on that part. And, and, you know, let's use this guitar for this song and this amp for the song. Really kind of dug into, like, the songs having, you know, different identi- identities and sounds and stuff going on. And at that time, Foreman had stepped down and he got married to a friend of mine and uh, that we're, we'd worked together outside of music. Kind of was like, you know, in that spot of wanting to settle down and not tour. Started working with Duggins again, who had played with us beforehand. And, uh, the fans hate that record, you know, <laughs> like Russell, I've read some ruthless reviews of it and, uh, I get it. 
I get that, like, if you have the tractor record and sorry about tomorrow and you get reality, you're like, man, this guy's maybe lost lost the, the path, or, you know, or the, the trail they were on or something. And I, uh, I think it bummed me out, you know, that uh, after we played a lot of those songs live, they were just like, wanted more pharmacists and more uh the old tunes what do you think though with like i mean i think save you is a great song i think there's a ton of songs on that like even now like i think it's i you, like failure a lot and you can it's almost like i can listen to that one more than the other ones if that makes sense well thank you that one aged the best probably i think yeah. so and maybe when it came out it was just a little like one step ahead of its time or something. And cause I mean, it didn't do well for the band. I don't think it did well for the label. And, uh, honestly, that's probably the one I'm the most proud of. I mean, I was still pretty new at pedal steel guitar, but I feel like my guitar playing on that record is probably the best that I've done. Speaking of like the tours and what was happening, it, did you feel like, you know, the, like the kids were different or they just weren't feeling it or they still want, like you said, they still wanted the pharmacist. Like, did it feel like that? Not just for you, but for other bands that you were talking to? No, that's a great question. Cause uh, there's a couple things that were happening around this time too, you know, and we kind of skipped over like me having the, the sissy bars and the don't tells and Andy having safety numbers and that's okay. Um, and where we're at now, we're talking about reality yeah, I mean, that was around the time I met, you know, Max Bemis through Tim O'Hare and how I ended up playing on the first couple Say Anything records. I kind of felt like I was like, even though I was only like 26 or 27, I was like already the old guy in the scene, you know, and there I was like digging on Graham Parsons T-Rex and getting into um, more rootsy stuff. It felt like, yeah, me, you know, I remember Tim O'Hare saying while we were making realities coming through. I don't think it's hard to make a rock and roll record when nobody in the band listens to rock and roll and all you guys listen to to is country music. And I remember being like almost offended when he said it. And then the more I was like, wow, he's right. I mean, you know, we weren't listening to like straight up honky tonk, but we were listening to like Graham Parsons and the the birds and, you know, Crosby stills Nash, Nash, Graham Nash's solo records and stuff. Jay turned me on to Jay turned me on to a lot of the like stuff. I was scared to listen to, in Hot Rod because of, you know, the the negative connotations I had had with country music growing up, you know, other than my grandparents being the positive influence. I'm talking about more of like the Garth Brooks, like dudes that sort of wanted to kick my ass in high school because I had long hair and didn't play sports or whatever. You know? So back to your question, it felt like there was a shift happening and like records like uh, Is a Real Boy were coming out. And I think that one kind of like shook up that world a little bit and kind of like that's you know it's a pretty impressive record um i just saw saves the day roll through town and kate and i went and saw them and it really i remember like in reverie kind of like really coming out sort of around reality ish too and people being like wow that's not you know that's not through being cool or whatever so i knew other bands were going through it too and it seemed like there's these new other bands coming out that were fresh you know like max and and bands that i just completely like later vagrant stuff that i just like had checked out at that point it was listening to just honky tonk stuff i was gonna say related to that you seeing saves a day and you know you thinking about in reverie which totally makes sense like then everyone was like oh forget it that sucks like or just not as not as into it and there's these other bands kind of coming with almost like a poppier first or two one or two records 
like the guys that had been around doing two or three and were sort of expanding. Now, here's my bigger question. You can answer it or not. Is, you know, Andy did a solo tour, you know, the Where's the Band thing. And actually, it's the anniversary of the day that Chris Conley in New Jersey flipped out on kids for talking during songs, and especially songs that weren't the hit. Now, with fans and that era, it's like, I want the hit or I'm not, or I've moved on. Now, are they fans of your band, or are they fans of your song? And I think as that scene got bigger, I think certain fans just were like, I like these songs like a playlist, and if you didn't fit into that playlist, which wasn't there yet without Spotify, uh, it, they kind of moved on or just sort of discredited it. And now it's like, oh, yeah, that was my favorite record. And where were you when it came out? And I think it's it's tough for you guys when you did have your best record or In Reverie is a fucking strong record. And because of the scene, it just kind of got left and now it's like revisionist history and anniversary, you know, written up about it and how it was great. Well, where were you when it fucking came out? Yeah, I mean, I feel that that, that band, the anniversary, for instance, definitely experienced that to its level on their second record. And then anything they worked on post their second record, people kind of like, well, it's not designing a nervous breakdown. Why do you think that when you and I would follow a band, you know, we were pretty ride or die. I felt big time, and I yeah, big time. It's uh, so <laughs> you bring up that terminology just to SNL skit in mind, where I actually do side with Leslie and not Matt Damon. Where <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, they were dead after Pinkerton. But uh, you know, uh, yeah, you know, when I saw, you know, not to go back to earlier things, but when I saw Nirvana, for instance, they didn't play "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and as a, as a fan, I thought that that was really cool, you know, and. uh I think I keep that in mind even into the, the band I'm in today, but you know, Hot Rub would do that all the time where we'd be playing a crowd and I think they really wanted to hear the pharmacist and we were excited about something new when we were selfish and didn't give them what they wanted. And that was like before we broke up in 2007, but I, you know, like I think, uh, nowadays as a, as a guy that goes to see some of these bands that roll through that, you know, aren't, uh, around as much anymore. Like, you know, what whatever saves the day has kind of always been a band, but Kate and I went and saw Smoking Popes and, um, you know, we went and saw Jeremy Enix reunion tour. And it's like, there is something to be said about hearing the old, the old records. And I think that like when Hot Rod does reunion stuff that I kind of keep that in mind now, but, uh, to a degree, I think, you know, you should still be able to be a band and continue to write and do new stuff and not just have to play the eight songs that somebody wants to hear from that playlist, you know? I mean, because it's like if Andy's doing an acoustic song and it's something off an older record or something of his solo or Sloss Minor, whatever it is, and there's just audibly like, you know, people talking as if it's just if you can't take some if you can't take something else, you don't get pharmacists. Like, I think there's like this level of respect for an artist. And yes, if you're in a certain mode where you don't want to play that song, you realize it. But you, you there's a balance. And I think the certain era it was like give me what i want or get out of my you know i'm i'm not i'm not going to care and i think as a band you guys coming out with that record and it not feeling that must have been shock yeah i mean honestly man we when we put out reality it felt like uh yeah it felt like all of a sudden i don't i don't think we trade our fans but they 
definitely were disappointed. I think that it wasn't as like uh, straightforward and you know the regular hot rod formula, if you will. And then uh, you know maybe I don't even know wh- how we would describe uh, the last record, Underground is a Dying Breed, because I it's a little bit of both of those things. It's like compromise almost, but also like. I played almost a ton of pedal feel on that record, but with a fuzz pedal, and I don't think a lot of listeners listen to it and go, oh, he's like sitting down, you know? But um, I think I was so far along in my wanting to do what I do kind of thing, yeah, you know? And so the, you know, after, you know, 2005, I mean, that was an interesting year. I remember Armor for Sleep, and they had a, you know, What to Do or a Dead record, and did really well. And then there was this turn where they were the headliner, but everyone was, like, excited for these openers, and it was almost like this shift um, in what people wanted. And was that was that part of just sort of, like, let's just take a break, let's figure out what's going on, like, um, and, you know, figure out what the next step was? Um. I think I know what you're getting at. I mean, like, I feel like for us, we as a band, up until the end, couldn't, uh, like, it's not that we couldn't headline a tour, but yeah, we became like the world's best opening band for a little while there, you know? And uh, I, I think that's what you're speaking on. And yeah, man, it got really weird to like do, when we're doing like bigger kind of arena style stuff, but like, Town Glory or Gachalit or something, we'd be playing these like bigger venues that would hold, you know, 5,000 in some cases bigger. And you'd only play for like 20, 25 minutes. And, but you'd get to play in front of this like vast amount of people that probably new to your music, you know, and, uh, or maybe new one. Yeah. And, and the audiences were crazy loud and we were an electric band, you know, and it's probably because we weren't the headlining band, but the way that they would talk between the songs, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, it's weird, you know, it's inter- interesting. You mentioned that, uh, where's the band's meltdown? Cause I didn't hear about it until a while after it happened. And I'm friends with Chris, you know, it's not that we keep in touch, but I mean, he attended my wedding and Arun's been a, Arun's been a really good friend. In fact, he played in the don't tells with uh, me and my wife's family when we were on, that one doghouse record. So we, you know, we go back with those people a long time and I watched that video and it's hard for me to watch just because it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's like, I don't know, it kind of bummed me out, but, uh, it, I know where he's coming from. I'm not saying, you know, everything he did and said was right, but it is kind of hard sometimes to be on the other end of that where you're like, well, dang man, I am playing an acoustic tour. People are talking over it. I think Andy kind of just like, didn't care, you know, and and then Chris kind of was like almost like defending him in that situation. The the record on Immortal. I mean, that's the last record that we put out. The only thing that we didn't talk about that I think is kind of interesting is when we did sign that uh, that three record or two and an option record deal with uh, Triple Crown. Is that Triple Crown? kind of i mean i'm sure they ran it by us and ran it by vagrant or who knows oh they put out that like b-sides they put out the b-sides been their smoke bet yeah which is kind of like a fun you know collection of things for sure that that fans i think probably think is cool and 
you know, the quality of it, I think we pr- probably go, oh my gosh, but the Steve Serio artwork <laughs> on the front was like one of the, one of the cooler, like it's totally silly and juvenile, but it's like, it's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Back, back to immortal. Um, you know, I hate to say it was like the death rattle of the band. Cause that they were good years. And, you know, Joe Bolero was a cool addition to the band. We'd, we'd been through some weird things. I mean, Andy, I mean, the band had just like grown, you know, like yeah, Andy kind been of 10 years. Some, yeah. He had added some auxiliary players at a moment, you know, there, like for instance, Brian kiss kind of stepped into the band and he was a roadie that grew up with Jay. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, we need you to sing harmony on this one song and play guitar acoustic on these two songs. So it sounds like a different record or Jay's going to play keyboard. So you need, you know, and it was like, um, so we were sort of expanding that way and that felt really good for me when Brian Kiss was in the band and then a couple other guys came and left you know Jake and Jeff Turner the twins that played Say Anything for a while played with us in different roles and you know that was kind of um, you know w- when Jay's father Howard passed away we were on the road for reality and instantly Jay was kind of like out of the band for lack of a better term, not like, um, you know, for any bad reasons other than the fact that he lost his dad, he was devastated. We were devastated. Uh, Jay's dad was this like really cool mentor for hot rod in the early days. Um, and he'd been in a band called steam, you know, that had that song, na, 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 Hey, Hey, goodbye. And, uh, so Jay's dad was like another like coach, kind of like Andrew Ellis in the early days of like, Casey, you're out of tune or, you know, this guy's doing this, or you guys are missing it on this, and, like, it was never, like, necessarily, like, fun feedback to get after a show, but I always, like, took it to heart and really tried to do something with it, and we needed that, and, um, anyway, so, yeah, Howard's greatly missed, he's a sweet man, and, uh, when he passed, Jay kind of, like, you know, had, well, he left the tour, and we had to finish the tour with, uh, you know, like a fill-in bass player who was our merch guy, this guy named Rob Fitzgerald. Uh, and yeah, man, it was, uh, and then it was like, cool, now we need a new bass player. But, you know, without having like the original drummer, without having the original bassist, it was back to just me and Andy being the old, old school dudes that moved up in 98 from Bama. It, you know, it, it started to lose me a little bit. Me and Andy were, li- were living in, I, I was living in Denver at the time. He had moved back to Alabama so none of us were in Connecticut anymore and uh, I was really heavy into country you know I started playing with Burwinger when reality came out um, doing the only children that change of living record was made right around the time we were making reality and you know we did that tour in a school bus and it was like six weeks and it didn't uh, made zero waves pretty much in the music world back then but I think anybody involved with it um, to the say, I would say that it's a great record and that it really, it changed us, you know, and, uh, it kind of changed my perspective on where I wanted to be as a musician. Like I was playing a lot of pedal steel and then it was kind of like, well, if I'm going to be playing pedal steel as much as I love playing Burwinger's music, I want to be playing like hardcore country music. And I ended up playing in Drag the River and in Limbeck with Rocky Botolato and, uh, all that stuff was really cool, but it just kind of, again, fed the flames to, to put out the hurting kind, my first, uh, solo record, which came out in 2007, just around when Hot Rod broke up. And so, you know, when we're, we're talking about, uh, Underground's Dying Breed, Andy kind of was like, 
you know, hey, I got us a deal. Um, I have these songs. I want to make this record. And I think we had kind of already started talking about changing, not necessarily breaking up, but um, maybe, you know, I don't know if it was a hiatus or what, but we're just kind of like wanting to slow down a little bit. Everybody was at that spot and uh, we're all living in different places. And drummer Dan Duggins had started playing um, in New York City with like some, like, kind of like he went to Berkeley, you know, and he was trained jazz musician and played Latin music and stuff. And he was really starting to, and he played on the Hurt and Kind, you know, he put on my, uh, the Don't Tell's record and, uh, and the Hurt and Kind, my first solo record. And, uh, anyway, yeah, we did, uh, Underground and we recorded it in Alabama and Andy, Andy studio in Montgomery. And I came out for a couple weeks at a time and would, would lay down my tracks and Tim O'Hare kind of came in and, you know, he mixed it and produced it, but it, it wasn't like the production that we did on reality where we, <laughs> where we put everything through a microscope for three months, you know? Um, and it's a good record. I think, you know, you're like, you're saying stateside U S royalty, uh, cam, you know, camo or whatever, all that stuff is pretty cool. Um, and there's, you know, some great stuff on that record. And, uh, but I think, you know, and it maybe was going recoiling a bit from where reality was and trying to head back into more of a sorry kind of world, you know, but, uh, but it was, it was a good record and we got to get to tour and do some really cool stuff. Uh, we ended up, you know, going to Australia and that record was out. Um, and I think Australia was our last tour before we did our farewell tour. And, uh, we did the farewell tour and then, you know, not terribly long after that, Dan Duggins had a, had a stroke and, uh, that was really hard for all of us. And yeah, it kind of brings us up to kind of what I'm doing now, you know, just, uh, still doing, doing the country music thing. I have like five or six records out now and, uh, here I am at Ameripolitan in Memphis. Uh, we played a showcase last night on Beale Street at a place called Blue City Cafe, and uh, I'm nominated for uh, Best Honky Tonk Male Singer uh, for the award show tomorrow. That's amazing. So it'll be my fourth fourth nomination, perhaps my fourth consecutive loss, but in good company <laughs> nonetheless. No, don't say it like that. That's amazing. I mean, again, it's like, you know, you had that thing for 10 years and there's been some reunions and you've done stuff off and on and you've been able to work together. But then you met friends like you've got a split with Josh Berwanger and you guys have been friends for 20 years. And Josh is similar to where anytime he sends me music, I don't know what it's going to sound like because he's got so many other interests and it's awesome to be able to see everybody kind of grow into something that you know you don't just need to play the punk rock song um forever and you would think anybody in life doesn't want to do the same job every every year or change it up or mix things so i think that's that's what you're supposed to be doing as a as an artist you want to feel that right yeah you know um i've talked with other musicians that uh used to play in that world that are somehow now like in my country honky tonk world. It's just kind of where I plan to stay. I mean, uh, there will always be a rocker at heart from, from certain things, but, uh, I think the pedal seal is what killed me, you know, as far as killed old, old Casey and first the new one, it's like 
now I'm so obsessed with that sound. It's hard for me to imagine music without it and it'd be fun for me, you know? Yeah. But, um, it, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll always have a, a soft spot for the, the old, old days and, and hot rock for sure. And some of those bands that I grew up listening to that we mentioned, you know, but uh, for the most part, yeah, I've kind of just been doing this country world thing. And yet the split with Furwinger is pretty sweet, man. Cause yeah, he and I have been friends for so long. One of the first shows we ever played, he was like, one day you and I are going to have a band together. And we've done that. <laughs> and now we're not doing that anymore. And that's okay too. And the fact that, uh, we could come together and put out a seven inch where my side's pretty, you know, old school, country and then his side is like that's the cool thing about Burwinger. i feel like anything he's done over the years even though you're, you're saying he kind of has some different bags it really still sounds like him yeah you know? oh whether, totally whether it's rootsy or like punky or or whatever and that's one thing that i really admire about him um i think with me you know ever since i've kind of for lack of a better term i don't like to say gone country but ever since i put my solo record out people could come to expect kind of the same more of the same for me you know it's if anything the songwriting's growing the musicianship's growing you know any luck maybe my singing's getting better you know? <laughs> <laughs> more nominations <laughs> yeah maybe you know i'm just having fun man and uh making records and yeah the burning angels have been a band for like 10 years now and we've toured europe and uh is there anything that you want to do that you haven't done Ever, anything you know it's a cool question uh i mean i definitely always wanted a dog we got one of those pretty recently that was pretty cool for me because like my wife is like a cat person and i'm like a dog person but we didn't really ever see a middle ground and then plus she's my wife is a lot smarter than me and i'm gone all the time so she realized that it would kind of be her dog you know but then but then we have two daughters now and they're like well dad we want a pet and so we have like two lizards the lizards are really cool, but they ended up just being a project for me, and uh, they wanted something they could snuggle with. So, yeah, we got them a dog for Christmas. It's half Chihuahua, half Black Lab. Wow. Yeah, it's adorable. What's the and name? It looks like a kind of looks like a forever Black Lab puppy, but it uh, its name's Pearly. That's a good name. Pearly Diamond Presso, my daughter, Abby, named, named the dog. Anything I've ever wanted to do. I mean, I really love to play the Opry, man. I know it sounds sounds like crazy talk, but uh, I'd love to do that. I don't know if I'll ever get there. I played on the Opry like radio station past couple times I've been in Nashville. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any. Uh, like, I don't think I'll be able to lock that one up anytime soon. But you asked for like big dreamy stuff, and you gotta I mean, be like, like Andy. You gotta say it. I want a dog. No, you gotta say it. You gotta say, I gotta, yeah. I wanna talk. I wanna get on the Opry. You gotta be like Andy. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lesson to be learned from the old action jacket. <laughs> I used to make new friends with all those friendly kind of gals. We'd start out a little fast and burn out in a flash. But now I'm getting old And all my worldly ways are done I need a new kind of love And quit my running round I want a new kind of love
Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years, or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening and for this current episode you're about to hear. I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shuttle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted Volume 1 so you can order both. Check out the DIY publishing at anthologyofemo.com.